0: In the scriptures, we're told that we are in a battle. But not a battle we see with our eyes here in the realm of flesh and blood, but rather a spiritual battle, fighting alongside each other against an evil spiritual enemy. We are given clear commands on how we are to stand against the evil one, suiting up with the full armor of God, so that we may be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power.
1: Trinity Church, I want to welcome you today to this service. I'm so grateful that you're joining us in week two of a brand new series called Armed standing together in spiritual battle. So we're grateful that you're making this a part of your day wherever you are, whether you're at home, watching with family or friends, whether you're on the road somewhere, just got your phone out, whatever it might be, we're grateful that this is a part of your day today on this last weekend of September. It's amazing to see where we're at already in this year, and we're glad that you're here with us. I'm so grateful for our productions teams. We have a lot of moving parts today, and you're going to see that more as as the service progresses. But I'm so grateful for the hard work that they're doing and just a great job keeping us with our head uh, screwed on tight. So if you have a Bible today, if you would find your way to Ephesians chapter 6, that would be great. And if you have notes either that you've downloaded from the website already or if you have the app, you can pull those up and digitally respond to those, and that'd be great. Well, like we said, this is our series graphic. Uh, We talked a lot last week about we picked it with intentionality. Ephesians 6, talking about spiritual battle is a y'all kind of idea. Every verb, second person, plural. So we picked a group of soldiers in battle together because that's what Paul is calling us to as his church. Let me give you a couple uh, updates going on, just some yay God stuff. We're real excited. This produce pantry opportunity to serve both our church family and the community has been an incredible win since way back in May, and it continues on. We've had some contract changes here and there, but we're working with the Blessing Center, and every Thursday in October, beginning this Thursday, October the 1st, We're going to be having even new types of boxes, not just with produce, but with dairy and meat products as well. And so an update on that simply is this, as that day kind of keeps changing, we have an amazing team uh, who's been doing a great job as volunteering to get those boxes transported to different places. They get brought to one location and then distributed all over the valley. So in order to continue that ministry to our community and uh, even to our church family, we do need more volunteers this Thursday and the other Thursdays in October uh, to be able to, with a truck or a big van, be able to move boxes around or even bring some over here to the church. And and we also need folks at the church to be able to help distribute those beginning at 10 o'clock this Thursday. If you'd like to get involved, and helping with that this Thursday, then you can contact uh, Mary at missions at trinityonline.org. Missions at trinityonline.org. Also, the food boxes is a, it's kind of a new dynamic with the meat and dairy portion. So, as a result, we're going to have people signing up to receive those boxes. So, if you would look at our website, click on this icon, produce pantry, and then as a result, you can um, find your way there to identify if you'd like to sign up to receive a box or boxes this Thursday. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of that as well. Well, in this series, what we've been uh, identifying right out of the gates is that when we're in battle, it's obviously key to understand not only what the objective is, but who our enemies are. And we said last week, we asked the question in a culture that is so conflicted right now, is our main enemy the government? Is our main enemy uh, that of a particular political party? Is our enemy the protesters, or is it the police, or is it anyone at our local church who disagrees on any particular issue like these from us? And the problem is, is that we're so divided and frustrated, it is an easy place to forget who the real enemy is. And the Bible is very clear, it's not each other, it's not us. The Bible calls us as part of the family of God, brothers and sisters, And even if it's not related to those inside the church, even in our culture, as we'll see again today, the Bible calls every human being an image bearer of God and someone who is redeemable just like you and me. So the great question, we start off again today, who then is our enemy? And I'd say today with great confidence, as we'll see in our passage, none other than God's enemy, Satan himself, who is out to steal, kill, and destroy what God loves most you. And so we need to know that going into each and every day. Being the children of God means that we're a battalion armed, armed by our Father to be able to stand together in spiritual battle. So here's our now what statement today for where we're going in this particular passage. Knowing that one of our enemy's strategies is to divide and conquer, walk in unity as we stand together against Him. So knowing that's one of the strategies of the enemy is to divide and conquer, our goal, our call today in this passage is to walk in unity as we uh, stand together against him. Number one, if you're walking with us in your notes today, understanding who your enemy is not is essential to engaging in spiritual battle. Understanding who your enemy is not is essential to engaging in battle. This is what we mean by that. We're in Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. Look how it begins for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. For our struggle, our tension, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. We're continuing on from the verses where we left off. Last week, we looked at the verse, first two verses in this passage in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, and now this week we pick it up at verse 12. And at the end of our passage last week, we saw that our enemy was named the slanderer, the devil, what that word literally means. And we talked about how we're not each other's enemies, a scheme that the devil uses to divide us, to distract us, and to cause us to think that it's really not him. He loves that. That's a great strategy and technique he uses. And we saw that that was his, most likely his main approach of, the, of dividing the Ephesian church was what he was after because of all the things that Paul writes about the need for them to have unity. And we saw that not much has changed in 2,000 years, and we talked about a unity crisis that we're facing even today here at Trinity. And we mentioned the idea of friendly fire last week, how that's the worst of all things. We have a battle, we have a real enemy, but when we mistake that, for that enemy for someone else, tragedy always happens. So what if we're in this season? Think of it even this way. Maybe at Trinity, we're in a season at, at some point in the future of great harmony, And and of working well together and of having this Christ-centered unity, what then of maybe outside forces, maybe in the culture, in the political arena, even in here in our community, that might come against us, surely they must be the enemy. But this passage tells us different. According to what we just read in Paul's words, if they have flesh and blood, then they're not your enemy. Now, they might be acting that way, and they might be in a very adversarial posture, but at the end of the day, why we chose this study in this season is that we seem to be so much at each other misidentifying where really the struggle is and that it's in the spiritual realm against a spiritual enemy, not in the flesh and blood realm against another person. They might be pawns in the process of what Satan's doing to disrupt and to destroy, but at the end of the day, we have to see it together. We have to see that he is truly our enemy and people are being used by him. Because every human being is made in the image of God and deeply loved by God and is redeemable by God, all those things remind us that at the end of the day, God can do an amazing work even in the life of someone who so directly opposes you. Here's what I want you to do today. I just want you to take a couple moments with me. I want you to think if there's someone in your life who is acting like an adversary to you someone who is seemingly opposed to you and, and you would say, this person is my enemy. Some of us might not have anyone like that in our lives right now. Plenty of us do or feel that we do. So in that moment, take a moment, close your eyes, get their name and get their face in your mind. And as you think about them, most likely what you're thinking about is what they've done to you, right? You're thinking about why you would consider them to be such a, uh, an adversary at this time. But what we've seen in the first half of verse 12 is that your struggle is not with them. I want you to hear that with great clarity today. Your enemy is not the person you're identifying, not the face that you're seeing in your mind. You only have, according to the Bible, one true enemy. And that's who's behind all of this, and that's Satan himself. And that's what we're going to uncover in our time together today. Though I could have picked one of so many different divisive issues that are plaguing our country and sadly our churches today, I believe that the one that we'd be best served at looking at, the one that we're going to thread throughout our service today, is the challenges related to racism and the lines that, we, that are being drawn and the sides that are being taken that are perpetuating a lack of love and compassion and justice in our country. I could have easily picked the political climate regarding the upcoming election. I could have easily picked our canceled culture that we're seeing in so many different types of relationships, or the sides that are developing related to the legitimacy of COVID-19, just to name a few. These are all things that are causing so much splintering and fracturing. These, along with the clashes that we're experiencing regarding racism all have in common this polarizing effect that causes us to keep from having healthy dialogues and to keep us from living in harmony together, living in unity together. So this is how I thought we could start by engaging this issue today, this issue of racism as an example of one of Satan's ploys, one of his tactics. And how that we are not each other's enemies, even when it feels like we might be at times. So I'm grateful today to have my good friends Marquise and Marta. And uh, you would know them uh, from Trinity Church in the ways that they serve. You might not see Marquise all the time. He's involved in our productions team and does a great job. And you know Marta from being on stage with our worship team. They serve in multiple areas at Trinity beyond that as well, so not limited to that. You guys, thank you so much for being here with me today. We've been dialoguing for the last couple of weeks about today. It's been a great conversation. I've been learning a lot, and I really appreciate you being willing to share with us today. So I wanted you to hear, Trinity Church, from your own brothers and sisters that are a part of Trinity a little bit of what their stories have been, and we're going to ask a few questions. And we'll start with you, Marquise, and then Marta, if you would answer it as well. Would you each please share an example or examples of how you've experienced racism personally?
2: Um, Okay. So I remember
1: being like an
2: 18 or 19-year-old, and I remember uh, coming home from school. I used to go to like Cal State San Bernardino, and I took the bus home, and I remember getting off the uh, number 5, and the number 5 comes up 5th Street, which used to, you know, it goes up to Foothill or whatever. And when I got off the bus, I took like maybe two steps and the bus left and the and a police car basically pulled up and they got out of the car and they asked me where I was, who I was and where I was going, what I had in my backpack and you know, as I proceeded to answer them, um, which the answer was I had a book, my math book, my uh, calculator and Stuff and uh, they handcuffed me. They laid me prone on the ground while they searched me. And every when I was asking them like, "Why are you searching me? Why are you? Why am I being arrested? Am I being arrested?" Um, Their answer was, "Well, you know, there was a murder in the area, and you fit the description of the murderer." Um, After I was, you know, unhandcuffed and up on my feet again, the question was, "Well, what is the description of the murderer?" And the answer was, "Black." 16 to 25, 5'10 to 6'3, 150 to 200 pounds. And so it was like probably, I don't know, 80% of the African-Americans in the area. And and like that group, um, along with, like I've had a lot of encounters with law enforcement, and that's kind of the thing that kind of bothered me. Because um, at the end of the day, it's like, well, your job is to protect and serve, and you're, you're harassing me, specifically. And I think more recently, um, like a couple of years ago, uh, I live in Calamesa and I was walking with my daughter from our house to the 99-cent store to get her um, inner tubes for her bike. She kept asking me to fix her bike. So we went and took a walk, and these guys, I saw them hit the corner, and then, you know, I saw them out the corner of my eye, hit the corner, we're walking, and then i saw them pull around i was like oh man yeah. and they get out the car and they walk across the street hands on their belts and they're like you know good afternoon you know uh, we're doing community safety and you know we're just checking everybody that's that's you know ar- around the community and i'm like well it's just me <laughs> so i don't understand and they kept asking me about my warrants or uh, if I've been arrested or I'm on parole or probation. And I'm like, no to all of those. And they kept asking me for my information. Um, which I was disinclined to give because I didn't have my wallet. So um, it was a back and forth thing. And like I had to have my daughter. I was like, love, go sit over here for a second uh, while, while I talk to these gentlemen. And like she's like having a straight out panic attack because these guys are... Like, they keep asking me, you know, well, why don't you want to give me your information? And I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, I will give you my name, I will give you my date of birth, I will give you all that stuff. But no, I'm not going to give you my, my ID, mainly because I didn't have it. But, but the point is, like, it was like this whole big thing. And then he, he tells me, oh, I know you're showing off for your girl, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, my 16-year-old daughter? That's who I'm showing off for? My 16-year-old. And then after that, it was a different conversation because it was like, oh, this is your daughter. Yeah, I'm her dad. We've lived here longer than you've been here. I know the rest of the law enforcement here. I just don't know you, and I don't understand why you're treating me this way. Mm. They followed me to my house because they didn't believe that I lived in Calamasa. Like, they followed us to the store and followed us back home, mm. and I just, I just couldn't deal with that. I was like, I don't understand. Like it, It's not something that I've done. I'm at home with my daughter on my day off and we go walk to the store and this happens. So it's like, I don't know that those are my examples.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry, Marquise. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you. No problem. Marta, what would you kind of share on that concept?
3: Well, for me, it's a little different, you know, being female and from the Dominican Republic, um, I want to more talk about microaggressions. And these are comments people say that they don't even realize are racist. So, for example, I've had um, people here at church come up to my two daughters and, you know, caress their hair and then say, aren't you glad that your daughters don't have your hair? I'm sorry, I didn't think I would get emotional. Um, Or someone coming up to me and hearing me speak Spanish and then say, oh, wow, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm originally from the Dominican Republic, so Spanish is my my first language. And then they say, oh, wow, you speak English so well. So it's like I can't win, you know, in either (laughs) camp. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think one of the most hurtful ones was when um, we have a tradition that every Friday we go to Baskin Robbins and we eat Ice cream there.
1: It's a great tradition. Best Love
3: it. ice cream ever. <laughs> um, and then speaking in Spanish because I always I always try to speak Spanish to the girls when or whenever we are every, just everywhere. Um, and a family kind of mummering to each other and turning to each other and in front of my daughter saying she must be the nanny, mm. you know, and just hearing them say that, you know, and my daughter's like, you know they don't think you're our mom, you know, and that's just so hurtful, you know, and then early in our marriage, before Mark and I got married, I think a well-meaning pastor just saying, I really don't think you guys should get married because you're of a different race, you know, and just those kinds of things, you know, that I don't say anything about, you know, that build just this kind of resentment over time because they're hurtful words. Yeah. And, over time, just you know, I take them in and I take them in, but you hear them on a daily basis, mm. and you don't take time to to hear how hurtful they actually are, especially when you're hearing them in front of your children, yeah. and you don't stand up for them in front of your children, but they are super hurtful, and you hear them just all the time. Yeah, but they are racist comments.
1: Absolutely, and that whole idea, like you said, of them, we've used a term recently in some of our elders meetings about the idea of stacking you know, it just keeps, they just kind of keep growing. So let, let's use that as kind of a transition for both of you guys. So what helps you not let that become a, a root of bitterness or resentment? How do you keep from kind of turning that corner? Because our, our topic is people aren't the enemy, though they act like it at times. And these are some examples how, does that, how do you keep a heart that doesn't get hard-hearted or frustrated or resentful towards others? We'll start again with Marquise and then Marta.
2: I think um, for me, so I think part of it is I've actually encountered, like, for, so for law enforcement, for example, I've actually encountered law enforcement that that's actually not a problem it, they're not as frequent as I would like, but I have encountered them. Like, the officer that, that used to be in Cala Mesa before those other guys, like, this guy used to, because we worked nights at the time, he used to sit in my front uh, driveway because my daughter was home mm-hmm. on, on her own. That's cool. Like, she called on a cat one time. She heard a cat, and he was like, yep, I'm here. Is it okay if I check the yard? Mm-hmm. And, you know... He pulled me over several times for speeding. <laughs> <laughs> Things that maybe were appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was super professional and, you know, so stuff like that or even, um, I don't know, yeah. I even have a friend now. We'll go to lunch sometimes. Like, I, he'll come pick me up at my office. We'll go to lunch in uniform. I mean, it was somewhat offensive the first time we got out of his car and... Um, hmm. Like, they were looking at me like, what is he doing in the front seat? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, that was, you know, but yeah. but stuff like that, that, that kind of helps me because it lets me know that, one, racism is, while it's there, it's kind of like you were talking about. It is, it's a sin issue. It is. And so for me, I feel like if sin is supposed to be nailed to the cross, that's, that's where I'm going to leave it. Mm. And I think that those examples show me that there are people that, Deal with racism, don't understand that as a sin, and have not left it nailed to the cross, or haven't nailed it there in the first place. But there are other people that understand that it's a problem and leave it nailed right where it's supposed to be. So that that's kind of helping me right now. Yeah,
1: so. Amen. That's great, Marta. What would you say?
3: Um, I think for me, there's another example where um, maybe some of you don't know. My husband is Caucasian, by the way. Um, I was trying to explain to Mark where my brother had been stopped and I was telling him that he felt the need to put all of his belongings and his hands just on the steering wheel just to avoid any um, misunderstandings. And Mark's response was, well, probably your brother was probably speeding. He likes to drive fast." And, you know, the dismissal. Yeah. And I was so hurt by that. And so I was just trying to understand that. And then I was just thinking that Mark, as Caucasian, he'll never understand because he hasn't had experiences or his limited experiences are just not going to get him to understand. But I know that Mark is not racist. Hmm. I know that Mark loves my brother. His family is super loving towards me. They have visited my family in the Dominican Republic Hmm. numerous times. And We have amazing family time together. Um, Mark loves our daughters. He is an amazing father. Um, And he's loving towards me. Um, And I know... um, I just wrote this down. I think it would be better if I just read it. Um, The conversations we are having can only start to bring us closer together and bring healing to places where there's been hurt. And because I love him, I want that healing to occur But that doesn't go without saying that it's hard work and sometimes very painful. Amen.
1: Thank you. You guys, last question. Thank you again. This has been so rich for me personally. I know it is for people watching. This is my question, where from here, because my mind is always on, are there things that we can do to be a part of the solution and not just keep seeing the problems? So what would you say are some avenues that we as brothers and sisters here at Trinity can take to help turn the tide of racism in our community? We'll start again with you, Marquise. You
2: know, so I think, I mean, I think this is one of the things, like, it's, I think it's about, like Marta was saying, and kind of also you're getting at having conversations and, and kind of putting it out there. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Isaiah. Um, I can't remember the one but it's basically he says when the enemy comes in like a flood the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him mm. and I think in this case uh, if we're not battling against flesh and blood we're battling against an enemy that wants to foster hate and racism and prejudice and all these things then the standard should be the people of God yeah. and that means the people of God being of every nationality every country, every color, everything like that they should be the standard and the way that they interact and deal with these issues like it, it's an issue at church as well but I think the difference is we have the spirit of God that like, like will lead us into all truth and, and lead us into unity and things like that and so as we have that example and the world looks at that that that's the standard, and so I think that's a way forward.
1: That's awesome. That's great. Marta, what would you add to that?
3: I think the meaningful conversations, I mean, we've had um, tremendous conversations. Um, I want to say that I've had some amazing conversations this week, even with my friend Grace, my sister, my brother, my Mark. Um, I did some, just in a lot of research as I was preparing for this conversation, um, and Having empathy for each other, um, you know, if we talk about empathy, that's taking the perspective of another person and really being in their shoes and, and feeling what they're feeling. But um, again, I'm just going to read what I wrote because yeah. I think I'm just I'm getting a little anxious. That's OK. <laughs> um, staying out of judgment and recognizing emotion in other people and really being able to share that emotion. But as we were talking, you and I, Todd, um, taking it a step further than that, and and not becoming defensive when you're talking to other people about those topics, um, I think is super important. Like when I'm talking to Mark, listening to him and not being like, you need to hear what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also to unite by standing personally against all forms of biases and discrimination against people of color. Um, I read this quote earlier this week, and it says, Stop for a beat and think before you speak, especially when you're weighing in on someone's identity. And most of you know that I love music. That's why I'm on the worship team. And I couldn't end my part here without mentioning a song. Um, And this is by Wayne Watson, and he says, When God's people pray and take the pains of earth to the doors of heaven, when God's people pray, there is hope reborn There is sin forgiven, and miracles we can't explain away when God's people pray.
1: Mm, That's awesome. You guys, I know it's weird to thank these guys from home because they can't hear you, but wherever you are, would you just thank them uh, through applause? And you guys, I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being willing to be a part of this weekend and this message. I love you guys. All right, powerful stuff, and I wanted you to hear it right from... Marta and Marquise, and appreciate them being just, we've had some great dialogue and conversations these last couple weeks getting ready for today, and I appreciate them taking a step out to be willing to do that. Let's continue in our notes. Number two, understanding how your enemy strategizes is essential to engaging in battle. Understanding how your enemy strategizes is essential to engaging in battle. Let's see what we continue in Ephesians 6:12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if we aren't each other's enemies, and if no flesh and blood is your enemy, Paul goes on now to Communicate with great clarity that it's not just the slanderer, the devil, who's opposed to us, but his forces of evil that operate in a coordinated attack against what God loves most you. And this is important to know. Out of the gates, what I want you to know on this topic is I don't want to spend a lot of time analyzing and trying to decipher the differences in all these different ranks or companies of the demonic legion or how they might operate distinctly from one another. And the reason why is that's simply not the most important thing is to know all these different distinguishers because I don't know that biblically we're going to get much further than conjecture anyway. But it's simply important to know that they are the slanderers' emissaries, his minions who work to oppose you and your king. Commentator Peter O'Brien said it this way, this fourfold description is not uh, intended to indicate that four or even seven, if you include those back in chapter one, these categories of demonic spirits exist. The different terms point to the same reality. And any attempts to rank them is pure speculation. The relationship of these powers to the devil is not specifically spelled out, but the context closely allies them with him. They belong to, quote, this darkness and are called spiritual forces of evil. They are under the power of the evil one and form a united front. In fact, verse 12 may be an expansion of the reference to the devil's schemes in verse 11. These spiritual authorities are not represented as acting independently of the devil, but as agents, they share with him the common objectives and strategies. Certainly, Paul does not present a different strategy for resisting the powers in contrast to how they would resist the devil. The assumption is that they have, quote, a common nature, objective, and method of attack which necessitates the believer to depend on the power of God to resist them. He says it so much better than I could, but the basic takeaway is there's no need to get into the minutia of what this type of demon would be in in, in representative to that, but simply to say they're aligned against you and against, obviously, the ultimate enemy for them, God himself. This isn't to say that there hasn't been speculation of what these things mean within Lucifer's legions uh, before. During my college years, it was Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, that caught fire, that provided a lot of um, interest and even speculation into the realities of spiritual battle. And just going back a couple generations before that, it was C.S. Lewis's work, The Screwtape Letters, that we mentioned last week and talked about that caused a generation during World War II to really see the enemy behind who they thought was the enemy, that of Germany itself, right? This is World War II England, so incredibly timely book, and it just does such a great job of identifying these realities. There truly is a demonic reality behind any human adversary, I found an incredible thing that we linked on the every uh, series has what we call a series page on our website, and it's called C.S. Lewis Doodles. And here's one scene you can watch. There's four episodes that I found on YouTube. Here's one clip from one of them. Take a look.
4: Delighted? Yes. Yes, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. How so? (laughs) Don't you understand? The enemy wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Your patient will, of course, have picked up the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, Thy will be done. (laughs) And for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of all the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. Let him forget that since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to him, and let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. But isn't it impossible for him to know how to respond to a dozen different and hypothetical (laughs) fates? It is, but your patient doesn't know that.
1: So just to entice you a little bit to pick up the book or at least watch those clips on YouTube, you'll be uh, just incredibly... Uh, Better armed is a good way to say it against Satan's techniques. So if this is what Satan's soldiers and how they're organized, what are his strategies? Well, the passage primarily reveals that he too works in networks through an organized demonic force. And we saw last week that the name that Paul uses for our enemy is that of the slanderer. We said that was one who attempts to malign by causing one to be condemned and severed or feel condemned and severed from a relationship. And we saw that this can be directed not only vertically towards God, but horizontally towards one another and that it can present itself in so many different ways. One of those ways is what we're talking about today, that of the devaluing of other people. And that can happen not only through the color of one's skin, it can happen through disabilities. It could happen through economic status. And on the list goes that we in our culture, and sadly enough in our church, can at times divide over, fracture over, because of the way that um, we are different from one another. So I just want to be clear out of the gate today The Bible absolutely speaks of the way that we are called to value one another, the way God values us, and that racism, as Marquis said earlier today, is absolutely sin. Look how it begins from the very beginning. And in Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every human being is an image bearer of God, valuable to him and therefore valuable to us. Secondly, we saw that, see that the early church struggled with this reality as well of racism. Look at this from Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So here's Paul talking to the church. They have this incredible unity because of their common Savior. But look what he goes on to say, there is in this economy neither Jew or Gentile. That problem was all over Scripture, earlier addressed in the book that we are looking in, in Ephesians chapter 3 as well. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Please, for a moment, don't think that the New Testament early church didn't struggle with issues of racism, of valuing one over another. There is no Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, all things we love to divide over, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if we looked at where the Bible begins, look at how the Bible ends with this great scene around the throne of God, Revelation 7. After this, John writing, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And look at where they were from, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Like Marquis said, the church represented globally standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So just three examples, so for fear that I would somehow speak right over that today, and we might not all be on the same page, that the idea of simply valuing some people over others is a notion that the Bible speaks clearly against. I just want to make sure we're all reading off the same page today. So we know that racism from person to person is not according to God's way of how He loves us and how He wants us to love and value others. But what about when that happens beyond individuals relationally to structures and systems? Can there be problem at a more epic scale? Can these be tools in the hands of the enemy? I love the way this same commentator, Peter O'Brien, puts it. He says this, to reject the identification of the powers with human traditions and sociopolitical structures, he's referring to where some German theologians at the end of World War I saw Ephesians 6 as that's what those networks are, are human. This commentator says, no, they're not. They're truly a demonic network. But he goes on to say, "...is not to deny that these supernatural intelligences work through such agencies. After all, the New Testament speaks of the whole world lying in the power of the evil one. Satan and his hosts exist for the purpose of bringing their evil and destructive influences to bear on the world and humanity at every level." social, political, judicial, and economic structures can be used by Satan and his evil authorities to serve their malevolent ends. So, powerful to realize this doesn't just happen necessarily person to person, but on a much more macro scale at times as well. This quote suggests that Satan and his evil authorities can and do utilize all kinds of means of division and destruction to humanity, including sinful structures that can be used like it quoted to serve their malevolent ends. In the past few weeks, I've had a lot of conversations with people here at Trinity Church who are very concerned about critical theory. And it was actually new information to me until about a month ago. It's a philosophy initially fathered by Karl Marx, and it's found it, uh, that has found its influence in many entities, uh, organizations, and even slogans in our current racial division. And I want you to know, I would agree that there is great reason to have concern about the underlying ideas and underlying ideals that this really is a worldview that is in opposition to Scripture. At its core, it sees the world through a secular lens where the liberation of the oppressed is the goal. When you think of critical theory, that's ultimately what the goal is about, rather than the salvation of the sinner by a gracious God as found in the gospel. And in case you have no idea of what I'm talking about today, related to critical theory, I've given you a couple resources that have been incredibly helpful to me. Where I said earlier you can find this video of the screw tape uh, letters, this doodling like you saw today… On the same series page, you'll see a video by an individual named Neil Shenvey. It's an hour long, which many of us don't watch anything past three minutes nowadays. But it'd be a good hour of your time to be able to understand what's afoot. But another great video that I really appreciate, I was sent as well, is a podcast by Alyssa Childers, but her guest is Monique Dusan. And you would absolutely love that conversation to be able to understand terms and the background of some things that are going on that are being said that I know when you hear them, like when I hear them, they catch me sideways, but I'm realizing because a totally different meaning is meant by what's going on in popular culture than what I've understood the term to be. And here's the big thing I want to say related to this concept of critical theory and where my big concern is. It isn't the fact, like what we've said, there is a, a worldview that altogether is in opposition to Scripture. But my concern is, is that as we begin to break down critical theory and we see the problems with it, that we might absolve ourselves from feeling like we need to be involved in the problem of racism. It'd be the same way as this, many of us would have a view that because what we read in, in uh, Genesis 1, that God has, is the creator of all human life, he makes every human being in his image, that we would have a view that is concerned about and opposes abortion, And to me, an apples-apples idea would be, if there was another group, and there are, I'm sure, other groups that are involved in seeing abortion not be a reality in America today. But if you knew there was another group who had a theology, who had a worldview that opposed the truth of Scripture... That doesn't mean that you'd raise up your hands and say, I'm not going to be involved any longer or, or be a part of the solution of seeing abortion not be in our land because there's a group that's got a different take than you do. You'd recognize your differences and you would see what you have in common is the need to be able to say, hey, abortion's a bad idea. It's murder against the realities of a human being that God has placed in a womb. And that would be the same idea that I would want you to see today. And who I think can say it a lot better than I is my good friend Bob Mason. So Bob, I really appreciate you actually watched one of the videos that um, we mentioned, the one by Neil. And what I had heard your response was just kind of made me know we've actually had another conversation as well that just made me think I would love for Trinity to hear a little bit of your vantage point on these issues related to racism. So tell us a little bit, maybe, where it starts. Our first conversation, I remember asking you about growing up in the South, kind of what that was like and how that's kind of shaped your ideas.
0: Yeah, well, one of the things that comes to mind very distinctly, Todd, is uh, November the 5th, 1968. And I remember being in my home and watching the presidential election results come in. Mm. And I remember crying because the candidate whom I had been told— If he did not win, I would have to go to school with black kids. Hmm. And I remember crying because that guy lost. And integration began to take place. And at that time in the South, there was a a plethora of private schools that were organized and started for the primary purpose of thwarting integration. Hmm. And in 1970, my family moved to Tupelo, Mississippi, and I was in a classroom where I spent most of my day with 50% of the kids that were black. And and that was really troublesome to me. Hmm. And then I remember about a year later realizing that these black kids probably aligned more with the biblical concepts that I had been taught in my home than my white friends did.
3: Hmm.
0: Now, fast forward a little bit in, to... Um, uh, um, when I moved to Tupelo, the civic leaders had worked together, the civic, the political, and the business leaders, to make sure that only one public school system remained, and there were no private schools. And and what happened was quality education was available to everybody. Hmm. Now, fast forward to my senior year in high school, CBS sent the noted journalist Ed Bradley to my hometown to investigate segregation 25 years later. Ed Bradley was stunned to find out that the student body, student council president, was black at a school where 65% of the people were white and 35% were black. He said, how can that happen? So I began to see some of the benefits of people coming together.
1: That's awesome. Well, do that. Fast forward with me a little bit. Even after growing up, there were some experiences you would have over the years that would still also be pretty like milestones in affecting you. Share a couple of those.
0: Well, um, it's 1995. I'm on staff with crew. I am directing our movement at the University of California, Riverside. And as I would walk through the dining area, I would notice that the different ethnic groups that made up the student body would sit separately together. Mm. Now, if a person of a number group came into that setting, it it would be okay. but it just struck me that that was the dynamic. And so I started thinking and praying, and I decided to do a talk on racism. And and part of my prep was, uh, like you just did, with, with uh, Martha and Marquise, and thank you for and thank them for sharing their stories. But I took one of those big video cameras, went out on campus, and started talking to people of color, asking them the very same questions that you asked our two brothers and sisters. And, and I was stunned by the things that I heard. And, and I remember one time approaching a black male student at UCR and 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 one of the questions I asked him, I said, well, what do you think is a cure for racism? And he looked at me and he shot back. He said, there is no cure because it's in their blood.
1: Hmm.
0: And and at that point, I I, I recognized and I realized that what we're talking about here is a deeply spiritual problem that requires a deep spiritual solution, ultimately the gospel. Yeah. that we are sinful, that we are separated from God, that we need to be brought back into a right relationship with Him through Jesus. And as a result of that, we have the things within us to, to, to move forward. And as, as Ephesians 2 says, Jesus Himself is involved in breaking down the wall of, of hostility. And so I was also thinking as I gave that talk and came in contact with some information and realized that, you know, I needed to own up to some of the things that I personally had done and, and that contributed to racism and actions I had taken and things I had said. And, and when I gave that talk that night at UCR, afterwards, uh, a, a black lady, precious university student came up to me and buried her head in my shoulder and sobbed. And at, at that point, you know, I, I knew I studied about the economic and the physical damages of racism, but, but I came face to face with the deep emotional pain that that went on. And and that was just hugely significant for me and made me even want to be more intentional about having conversations and moving forward and doing what I could to bring about healing and reconciliation.
1: That's awesome. So, Bob, share with me the last question. Share, thank you so much, by the way. This is so rich. Everything about these conversations today has been so just significant for me. Um, share about you watched Neil's video, and uh, it was sent to both of us by Scott Strom, which I really appreciate it. It was a great uh, watch. But afterwards, you had a comment to him that struck me when it got to me secondhand. Share with maybe folks just kind of your takeaway from that.
0: Well, Todd, I agree with you. There are significantly concerning things about critical theory. And, and like you, my, my fear is that uh, people that look like me will watch a video like that or read a book, or they will become familiar with some of the broader agendas of some of the groups that are most prevalent and most visible in this conversation and in this fight right now and they will look at that and they'll say well that's Marxist I'm not Marxist or, or they're talking about oppressors I've never oppressed anybody or they're talking about um, um, you know things that I don't agree with and, 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 and I'm afraid that we will as a church will step away from that we will think I'm out I'm absolved of anything that I need to do and and they won 't engage in the conversations that are hard they they won 't acknowledge they won 't see uh, the things that, that that maybe we do that that are hurtful mm-hmm. and and we'll miss out on the opportunity to to be involved in that race that that healing and that reconciliation and and again, you know I think it 's um, uh, ephesians um, two twenty one Paul talks about Jesus being involved in the process where the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple.
1: Mm. That's awesome. Bob, thank you so very, very much. Everything, I just was so impressed when I heard what Bob shared, and I can't thank you enough for being a part of our conversation today. You guys, we need to wrap it up. We've been, uh, there's so many good things. Let me take you to our third point today, and it's this understanding your objective is essential to pleasing your commander. Understanding your objective is essential to pleasing your commander. This is how this passage finishes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand." This is yet again one of these therefore words. And the therefore we saw in verse 10, I believe, now again in verse 13 means literally just in these last few words, from therefore to therefore, it's only been three verses, as a result of all this truth, and again, it's for that second person plural, you all, it's an imperative, put on, not just partially, the full armor of God. This is our commander's objective. This is what he's clearly saying to us. And he says clearly, and so that you might be after everything else, be able to stand. I've wondered about that. Like maybe you, why wouldn't our posture be to fight? Why wouldn't our posture be to to maybe defend territory? And again, Peter O'Brien's been huge for us today. This is what he says. We are not urged to win the victory rather than withstand the devil's insidious wiles and to stand firm, a posture that will involve both defensive and offensive positions. Believers live in the overlap of the ages between the already and the not yet, an allusion to Jesus already won the victory. Oh, Christ is already seated in the heavenly places for above every rule and authority, God has placed all things under his feet. And we have been raised uh, uh, and made to sit with him. (laughs) I'll have to read my notes. We're going to fix that TV uh, some way or another. Um, But Christians need to appropriate what has been won for them. And in the present context, this means putting on the armor of God and standing firm in the midst of the battle. Where we leave you with today is that if that's what your commander has clearly said, your posture, my posture, our posture— is to be a people who put on the full armor of God, and beginning next week, we'll begin to look at that armor piece by piece. But these first two weeks have laid a foundation so that we would understand who our enemy is and what we're called to be about. This is our now what statement for this week. Knowing that one of our enemy's strategies is to divide and conquer, walk in unity as we stand together against him. What we said during this series is at the end of every message, we're going to give you space to pray. We've talked about a lot of things today and there's a lot of directions that your prayer can go. And if you're watching at home with someone, my just encouragement would be to group together and be praying over this idea or something else from today's message. Let there be an opportunity to respond. Like we even heard Marta shared today in that great lyric from that Wayne Watson song that when we pray... Let's make prayer this great strategy of doing what we're called to do in standing today. At the end of our time, we're gonna be led in communion today and you'll be ready to engage those elements with us.